I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of Upzoned, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner with Gould Evans out of Kansas City, and today I am joined by Rachel Quedno, who is the program director for Strong Towns. Welcome back, Rachel. Thank you. Good to be here. Good to have you back. So the article that we are going to be discussing today is called Stop Building More Roads. It was written by Shoshana Sachs and Kristen McCaskill and published in the opinion section of the New York Times. The article starts off by highlighting the fact that the one thing our two leading presidential candidates can agree on is that we should spend trillions of dollars on infrastructure in order to create jobs and revitalize communities and stimulate the economy. While crises are indeed a rare opportunity to bolster the economy through federal stimulus spending, the authors make the case that the value of infrastructure spending lies in its execution and that the last major infrastructure stimulus package in 2009 fell short of meeting the needs of 21st century America. As the federal level politicians promote infrastructure spending as a way to stimulate the economy, the article says that we can learn a lot from the way we recover from natural disasters and above all, that being that recovery comes in phases. I actually wanted to read an excerpt from the article where they wrote, that means that the first step should focus on job creation, but without saddling it to short-sighted status quo projects that we will later regret, highways, for example. The same goes for projects that emphasize technological infrastructure, which risks becoming rapidly obsolete. Such projects should be shovel-ready and shovel-worthy and sufficiently funded so that they don't linger in aspirational planning documents. In the immediate term, this means emphasizing lots of small projects. They can quickly be planned, discussed, and constructed once fire spread conditions allow. This would look different than the 1930s New Deal images of heavy construction everywhere. So as the title states, Stop Building More Roads, the authors, they offer a more incremental bottom-up framework for federal stimulus spending. And given the burden of debt that we've already borrowed on the backs of future generations, I actually might add that it is critical that we get it right this time. Rachel, as somebody who has been engaged with and writing for Strong Towns for many years now, I'd really like to get your first impressions on this article. Do you think that they accurately, I guess, stated a federal spending approach that aligns with Strong Towns? Yeah, I think overall, it was really exciting to see. I mean, even just the headline, Stop Building More Roads, if you've been hanging out with strong towns for any amount of time, you've probably seen that this is a major issue we advocate on. We use the hashtag no new roads. Yeah, overall, it was really heartening to see this sort of angle in a prominent newspaper. I mean, I saw it on the front 
homepage of the New York Times website a couple days ago. That said, like there, there are some things that I would disagree with a bit. And I think other strong towns advocates would probably feel the same. But overall, this approach of emphasizing lots of small projects, not building new roads, focusing on basic needs, maintenance, and planning for the long-term costs that might be associated. That's all stuff we really get behind. And I definitely think it's important to kind of re like orient the federal deficit discussion by reminding listeners that the U.S. carries more than $24 trillion in debt, and that additional federal stimulus spending will be funded through debt. The number that's been tossed around for this particular bill has been $2 trillion to my memory. That's not cash that we currently have lying around, to my knowledge. It's going to have to be brought into existence. And with that in mind, it really is critical that we're using the money in a way that is productive, in a way that really reinvests in ourselves, improves quality of life and the empowerment of people. Our planning group uh, recently published an article about the subject, citing a study by Smart Growth America covering the 2009 infrastructure stimulus package that concluded that maintenance and repair rather than new construction creates more jobs per dollar and is more labor intensive, resulting in more jobs. And in addition, reinvesting in existing infrastructure does not expand infrastructure liabilities. So that the more that we continue to expand those liabilities, the more expensive our communities will become in the future. So if we expand infrastructure without establishing a way to pay for it in the future, we are going to leave behind a greater problem for future generations to deal with. And, you know, coming from a young person, we have to stop doing that. We've built cities that are currently unstable and we have the opportunity to change course if we have the discipline. I think one of the things that's important to talk about here in terms of highways specifically for people that are newer to thinking about this topic um, it seems like a pretty obvious train of thought that, okay, if there's a lot of traffic, we should expand the highways and then, you know, my commute will be shorter because there's more room on the roads. But actually like study after study shows that expanding highways just induces more people to get on the road and has a negligible impact on traffic. And you spend like billions and billions of dollars doing it. So yeah, it's really not a great way to improve much of anything and just puts our our states, our country further into debt. One of the things that we've talked about in this Strong Towns Academy course we're currently releasing on the topic of transportation, Chuck talks about how the beginning of the federal uh, interstate system, um, which they also referenced in this article, was like a really, really powerful investment that transformed transportation of people and goods. Um, But now that we have the system in place, now that we have major highways, additional investments um, just have a very low return on investment and usually a negative return on investment. Yeah, at Strong Towns, we really advocate that if there is going to be infrastructure spending, it should focus on three or it should have three main criteria. Um, It should be focused on maintenance of existing infrastructure. Particularly, we definitely advocate for below ground infrastructure being a focus, sewer and water. Um, Those are such vital 
implements of how a city functions. Um, and so those investments really pay off and they're really necessary as we've seen in places like Flint, Michigan, where not having adequate sewer and water is devastating. And finally, we suggest that folks, that there's a focus on neighborhoods that are 75 years old or older, uh, because that model of development that happened prior to the 1950s was far more financially productive than the models we've used since then to build newer neighborhoods. So any infrastructure investments in those neighborhoods are going to have a lot more bang for your buck. You know, we focus a lot on the financial uh, sustainability of communities and how we can invest in infrastructure in ways that uh, result in more financially productive communities and sustainable communities. But I think that there's a social aspect of that, too, because when I think about reinvesting in um, existing infrastructure rather than, than expanding that, there, there's an inherent social portion of that basically saying that we are reinvesting in ourselves. It's important to recognize the vast amount of infrastructure that we have today that desperately needs repair. On this show, we've talked about the need to retrofit freeways into multimodal boulevards, reinvest in dams that are literally failing and flooding small towns, repairing outdated sewer systems, providing green infrastructure, modernizing our Amtrak system, and even retrofitting dangerous local streets. So I think now is the time for Americans to reimagine what progress looks like. For decades, we have looked at progress as the physical expansion of our cities that has been proven to be financially and environmentally unsustainable in many cases. And the destructive it's also destructive to our older neighborhoods by essentially shifting capital from one location in a metro to another. So to me, a progressive approach is a fix-it-first approach. I, I think that we need to stand back and look at the cities that we've built over the past you know, 100, 200 years and the past several decades and recognize them for what they are and then reinvest in ourselves. And when we you know, choose to expand, we need to ask ourselves who we are expanding for and why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't think it's just a progressive approach. I think it's also a conservative approach and and one that I hope like people in on all parts of the political spectrum could get behind. Um, I know that this article started by talking about how investing in infrastructure is something that has bipartisan support. But my hope is that and, and I think Strong Towns advocates know that actually starting small is something that that should have bipartisan support. You know, it, you don't have to have a, a particular passion for environmental issues or issues around different neighborhoods to just see that the economic, the money that surrounds highways and other huge infrastructure investments is just, it's not a good way to spend our money. So yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that the financial arguments for um, focusing on maintenance, focusing on mm-hmm. small steps, will hit home for a lot of different types of people. Could we call this a conservative approach to progress? (laughs) Maybe, yeah. The the semantics are interesting around these discussions, which is why I think Strong Towns gets a lot of people who support the philosophy on a variety of 
you know, coming from a variety of different political backgrounds because it, it kind of, you know, elevates above that, which is something I appreciate. Something that I also appreciate about this particular article is the notion that we should be localizing federal stimulus spending. Chuck and I have discussed in the past on this show the $2 trillion federal stimulus package um, a few months ago, and he asserted an idea that somewhat is echoed in this article, and it's the idea to just give the money directly to municipalities and maybe even regional entities to spend it on what they need. I kind of want to run through a hypothetical really quickly. To think about this in simplistic terms, according to Google, there are 19,495 incorporated places in the United States. Assuming that a $2 trillion stimulus bill, that would amount to $102.6 million for each incorporated municipality. Now, obviously, there would be a more rational way of allocating money based on population and need. But for argument's sake, let's just assume that the federal government gives every city half of $102.6 million. I think that cities or even regional coalitions of cities would likely be more thoughtful in applying the money where it's needed. I actually think that a stimulus like this could help fund the neighborhood's first program I'm sure that every neighborhood association can think of a few projects that would improve the quality of life, you know, substantially more than expanding freeways and doing big expansion projects. My city, for example, has approximately 240 neighborhoods. If $50 million were given directly to my city, and um, then that city, you know, my city gave that to neighborhoods, that would equal around $200,000 per neighborhood to make improvements. Neighborhood associations and leadership groups could use the money in ways that leaders were who are disconnected from the context wouldn't even think to do. Maybe, you know, your neighborhood needs a simple pedestrian or bicycle infrastructure improvement or sewer improvement. Maybe your neighborhood really needs someone to maintain a park or do cleanup or even plant street trees. Or maybe a collection of neighborhoods can work together to fund local programs that provide housing assistance for renters or homeowners unable to maintain their properties. If neighborhoods were given maybe a list of 500 eligible neighborhood-oriented projects and then just given money and told to spend it in five years, I'm... I kind of think that there would be a lot more creativity and it would be put to more productive use. I'd really like to see something that actually gives federal money at a more in a more localized way. Obviously there, you know, this is a hypothetical and I know that there are larger projects that are worthy of reinvestment like bridges, but why wouldn't we do something like that as as part of a 2 tr- trillion dollar bill? Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's a beautiful vision and like it would not be that complicated to do it, especially at a time when so many of us are spending a lot more time in our neighborhoods. I'm sure we can all think of like, you know, 10, 20, 30 small improvements that we would love to make, you know, even just how much more would your life be improved if a few key potholes on the streets that you travel were filled in as opposed to like, dropping that millions and millions of dollars to add another lane to a highway for me, whether I'm biking, walking, driving, um, just like paving some sidewalks and roads would be huge. 
for quality of life and safety and everything. So yeah, I like that neighborhood's first approach. Exactly. And something that it's made me think about, like the reason I thought about this is because there's people who walk along my street on a regular basis and they're carrying umbrellas because all of the street trees are gone. And just to plant street trees, it is this huge project because the planters have to be expanded because they don't meet code. And so, so it's this huge, you know, years long process of trying to get funding to actually implement something that seems so simple. I could imagine if if every neighborhood in America was given $100,000, like not even $200,000, just something where the neighborhood could work together to make improvements, I think that would be a worthwhile, it, you know, it, it would be worthwhile, I think. And it should be considered, who knows if it ever would be considered, but I think as citizens, we owe it to ourselves to advocate for the things that that we would like to see out of this. Yeah, for sure. And that would be a lot more of an equitable approach too, because I think we all know what happens when there's a big project with a big amount of money. It usually goes to certain types of neighborhoods and certain people that are going to benefit from it a lot more than folks in lower income neighborhoods, the neglected neighborhoods in our cities. So I like this vision. I hope that we one day see neighborhoods be more empowered than federal projects. Yeah, absolutely. And the decision making about how that money is spent could actually go to community leaders and the neighborhoods could work out what it's spent on and and what they need rather than the the planner from the outside coming in and saying your neighborhood needs XYZ. There may be a, a technical case to make for that, that if the, that there are sewer issues there, you'd be able to go in and, and say, we need to update the sewers. But when it comes to just the little things that you won't notice unless you're walking around a neighborhood every day, I, I think that there's something to be said about just giving the neighborhoods money and letting them decide what to spend it on. So this has been a really great discussion today, and I'm so glad that you were able to join me Before we conclude, it is time for The Down Zone, which is the part of this show where we get to share anything that has been captivating our time these days. It can be books, movies, TV shows, anything else. So Rachel, what has been going on in your life? Yeah, well, our public library system recently reopened for like curbside pickup and it's a lot more complicated than just like going to the library. You have to like reserve a slot and stuff, but whatever. I did it. I'm so glad to be reunited with library books. So the first book I picked up is called Americana by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And it was, I, I remember it being like all talked about a few years ago, I think, um, but I'm finally getting around to it. It's about a woman who immigrates to America from Nigeria and kind of her ongoing love story with her uh, high school sweetheart who stays in Nigeria and just like one of those novels that like shifts between different times. Um, Very raw and beautiful. So yeah, I'm enjoying that and just loving reading a novel for the first time in in a long time since like grad school, I was just consumed with not fiction. (laughs) And the other thing that is occupying my media consumption. I'm watching this series Halt and Catch Fire on 
Netflix. Um, it's also from a few years back, but it's about like the beginning of the personal computer and internet uh, inventions era um, in the 80s and just like these computer uh, engineers, coders trying to figure stuff out in their garages. Um, so that's a fun series too. What about you? Well, I've been really busy this week with work, but I will report that biking has officially become my main hobby, and I'm getting to the point that I'm able to do pretty long rides, which is really fun. If people are not familiar with Kansas City, they may be surprised that Kansas City is actually pretty hilly, and so <laughs> I've you know gotten to the point that I can go up steeper hills and um, I'm actually going to be doing some upgrades onto my bike, so it's a little easier to ride. I've biked for many years, but it's definitely something that I've been doing more and more since March, since we're not going to restaurants or, or going to concerts or anything like that. It's just kind of fun to ride my bike on a really regular basis. I will say also that our garden is in full swing now, so... We're starting to see some tomatoes. And now that we're in the second half of the year, it's occurred to me that I need to be spending as much time outdoors as possible. Obviously, we don't know how this pandemic will ultimately play out. But if it's still an issue this winter during flu season, there's a chance that we may be hunkered down for a long winter. So I'm sort of trying to make the best of the summer and appreciate the fact that we can be outdoors and doing activities. I really hope that's it's not the case because I really don't want to be stuck at home all winter, but it's 2020. Anything is possible at this point. So yeah, that's what I've been up to. Yeah, I think you're right. I've also been trying to really embrace being outside as much as possible. Um, spend a lot of time just sitting on our tiny deck and grilling like almost every night so yeah we gotta gotta live it up outside while we can to stay safe. absolutely everybody get the vitamin d and enjoy the outdoors this summer well thank you everybody for listening to another episode of upzoned thank you for joining me today rachel yeah keep doing what you can to build a strong town let me show you what i'm about to do Get